Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi and Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Well, Chris, it's great to be back doing the podcast with you after a break. Yeah, Yingyi's, we're so happy to welcome the arrival of your beautiful new baby boy river. And we really look forward to you eventually coming back to our team full time. Thanks, Chris. Now, there were some very significant shifts in global asset pricing in the month of July that were also associated with the advent of strong returns from fixed income after a very challenging period since late 2021 as risk-free rates and credit spreads soared. Having been extremely negative on credit spreads and interest rate risk in late 2021, holding close to record low exposures to both variables, Coolabar has been much more constructive on both spreads and interest rate duration since late May. We have monetized around $8.2 billion of credit hedges and credit shorts and are buyers rather than sellers of select credit assets at historically elevated spread levels. All of our contrarian macro forecasts from late 2021 regarding interest rates, equities, credit, housing, crypto, and a US recession have more or less come to pass. And at this juncture, we have far less conviction in the outlook compared to our aggressive views in December. Chris? Yeah, that's right, Yingers. We are negative on global growth, but field bond markets have now appropriately priced in the interest rate tightening cycles in the US and locally. We remain concerned about downside risks to the bellwether asset class, that is US equities, via a vulnerable earnings channel after the surprise for the market, not us. Jump in long-term discount rates forced the circa 30% correction that we were looking for late last year. Inflation has compelled the Fed to hike to the 25 to 3% range we were expecting, and now likely beyond that level, yet many of the supply side drivers of the recent inflation shock are now dissipating while demand is being crushed by record increases in interest rates. Our portfolios have tremendous capacity to add credit risk, which we are still structurally underweight, and we remain extremely excited about alpha generating opportunities in other non-credit sectors, such as Commonwealth and state government bonds, which materially contributed to performance in July. And Chris, in the short duration or floating rate bond world, the AA-rated Oswan Floating Rate Note Index returned 0.24% in July, helped by its robust 3.81% yield, which is lifted by a factor of nine times from just 0.43% in August last year. This was the Oswan FRN Index's best month since October 2020, in fact. Further down the credit rating spectrum, the BBB-rated Major Bank ASX Hybrids Index also had a very solid month returning 1.6% as hybrid spreads compressed sharply over July, following a period of weakness since May 2022, care of a surge in new supply. Hybrids have benefited from both wider credit spreads and a higher benchmark bank bill swap rate, also known as BBSW. In December 2021, five-year major bank hybrid spreads shrank to as little as 207 basis points over BBSW, in line with Coolabar's forecasts at the start of 2021. They finished July 2022 over 100 basis points wider at 309 basis points, primarily as a function of a torrent of new primary market issuance from all four major banks and Macquarie, which is unusual in such a short six-month period. Given the big moves in other global investment-grade spreads, exemplified by the major banks' T2 bonds, which pushed as much as 155 basis points wider from their 2021 tights, one might have expected five-year major bank hybrid spreads to have traded out as far as 400 basis points. Note that Coolabar's proprietary constant maturity five-year major bank hybrid index peaked at 369 basis points in mid-June. 
ASX hybrids have, however, been exceptionally resilient, as you would know, Chris, and one of the best, if not the best, performing fixed income asset class globally during the inflation shock. This is probably attributable to retail demand for high-yielding floating rate assets that have proven their liquidity in extreme shocks such as the unprecedented March 2020 event. The rise in the BBSW benchmark, above which hybrids pay a spread or margin, has been a much more significant contributor to total returns than outright spread moves. Three-month BBSW has leapt from 0.01% in 2021 to around 2.12%. This means a five-year major bank hybrid's running yield has improved from about 2.08% to around 5.21% in just seven months or by 313 basis points in total. Of course, the jump in BBSW benefits all floating rate bonds, not just hybrids. We'll return to the subject of spread moves later. Chris? Yeah, Ying, as the standout performer in July was, however, the long rather than short duration fixed rate as opposed to floating rate Osborne Composite Bond Index, which returned a stellar 3.36% in the month, albeit after suffering record losses since August 2021, as government bond yields exploded by a factor of four. This was, in fact, the index's best monthly result since September 1998, and its third best month since its inception 33 years ago. Coolabar has been advising clients that we were much more constructive on long-duration exposures via fixed-rate bonds after the US 10-year government bond yield exceeded our December forecasts for it to increase beyond 3.2%. With this in mind, in July, Coolabar's active composite bond strategy, which is also an ETF that trades under the ticker FIXD, outperformed the index, returning 3.51%, which was its best result since its inception in March 2017. Obviously, past performance is no guide to future returns, and please note the disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Yes, Chris, this was driven by a large reduction in expected future interest rates, marginally tighter credit spreads, and the new tailwind afforded by the AA-rated index's attractive 3.11% yield, which has increased from a miserly 0.75% last year. In June, traders expected the RBA to lift its cash rate to as high as 4.5% as part of the current tightening cycle. Yet in July, they paired back those beliefs to a much more palatable 3.1% terminal RBA cash rate. At the end of July, the RBA's cash rate was 1.35%. This was the highest it has been since June 2019. This is projected to climb to 1.85% following a 50 basis point hike at the central bank's August meeting, which would put the cash rate at its loftiest level since May 2016. Lower risk-free rates, i.e. government bond yields, boosted the price of fixed-rate bonds. At the same time, some credit spreads tightened somewhat, which also supported total returns. In the state government bond market, 10-year New South Wales and Victorian spreads above the Commonwealth government bond yield curve contracted from 60 and 62 basis points respectively to circa 57 basis points over the course of July, based on Coolabar's proprietary indices. This was a function of extraordinarily strong buying of state government bonds by banks searching for liquid assets, which as you regular listeners would know, has been a core Coolabar hypothesis since late 2021. We estimate that Aussie banks have to buy between $220 and $440 billion of state bonds alone by December 2024, or total government bond buying of $315 to $570 billion, which, by the way, will be four to seven times bigger than the RBA's quantitative easing program vis-a-vis the state bond sector. 
Concurrently, we have also watched the state slash their expected debt issuance for FY23 from original estimates in 2021 of $86 billion to less than $64 billion. This was a second core and contrarian thesis that Kulabar had published in 2021. Tighter state bond spreads were also facilitated by a very slow unwinding of the record increase in swap spreads, which is a topic we will drill into a bit more detail later. In June and early July, state government bond spreads have remarkably blown out to their March 2020 pandemic levels of around 60 to 62 basis points over Commonwealth bonds as a result of the unprecedented increase in swap spreads, which is a hedging cost, making them one of the cheapest fixed income sectors globally. Indeed, Coolabar is not aware of any other global bond sector that has been trading at March 2020 levels. One rating notch lower in the AA- rated five-year major bank senior bond market, credit spreads compressed modestly in July from 97 to 95 basis points over BBSW. There has been foreign bank demand to buy five-year major bank bonds despite their very rich levels to the US dollar market. Coolabar is neutral on this part of the bank senior curve, having been short the sector from about 25 basis points over BBSW through to current levels. A different story has been playing out in the major bank's triple B plus rated T2 bond market, where spreads increased sharply in July from 243 basis points to 263 basis points over BBSW on the back of outflows from credit funds at an inopportune time for investors who have seemingly picked the bottom and a large new $1.25 billion issue from NAB that we'll discuss in more detail. T2 appears to be one of the cheapest sectors in the Aussie fixed income market, and it's an area that we've been adding to in our portfolios. Isn't that right, Chris? Yeah, Ying, as we certainly love T2 at 270 over BBSW, we were aggressive sellers of T2 when it was trading at 125 over a year ago. And I think generally similar pain has been evidenced in the much more liquid residential mortgage-backed securities market, where our proprietary index of three-year weighted average life RMBS spreads for non-banks has increased from 142 bips to 149 bips over BBSW in July, compared to the 2021 tights around 73 bips. And we expect much more pain to come. The RMBS market has struggled more than any other with the withdrawal of the bank balance sheet bids following APRA's wise decision to shutter the bank's lucrative $140 billion committed liquidity facility in 2021 which is something that Coolabar forecast in August last year. And note that in 2019, this CLF was as large as $240 billion. Last year, we argued that the CLF's closure would be very negative for both bank senior paper and the RMBS market, given that banks were using the CLF to buy tens of billions of dollars of these assets, and by doing so, artificially reduce their cost of capital through what was a direct taxpayer subsidy, given that the CLF was supplied via the RBA. Yet, whereas the Aussie bank senior bond market has true global demand, indeed very deep global demand, Aussie RMBS is a much more idiosyncratic and mostly domestic product, although there has been quite a lot of Asian and in particular Japanese appetite of late. Banks further have the option of raising capital via issuing bank deposits, in contrast, non-banks are really limited to issuing RMBS. As Aussie house prices experience a record drawdown and mortgage default rates inevitably climb sharply, Coolabar continues to forecast that RMBS spreads will widen appreciably from current levels. Indeed, Chris. Now, turning back to the ASX hybrid market, its robust returns in July were driven by material spread compression, with our five-year major bank curve contracting from 334 basis points 
to 309 basis points inside post-2013 average spreads around 346 basis points. While we had forecast superior performance out of the ASX hybrid market as a consequence of risk premium compression, current spread levels are now tight relative to higher ranking uh, and rated major bank T2 bond spreads sitting at 263 basis points. Given the choice, we now prefer T2 over AT1 hybrids. Yeah, I think that's right, Yingers. More generally, one of the most important developments in July was the ramping up of expectations of a US recession, combined with evidence that the supply chain blockages that have plagued the global economy since 2020 are gradually dissipating. Global freight indices have declined by more than 50% from their recent peaks. Timber prices are off some 62%. And key commodity prices, such as oil and copper have recently fallen by more than 20%. There are also hints that there may be an attenuation in core inflation and wage pressures in the US, which, if confirmed, will obviously help ameliorate the risk of the Fed having to hike its cash rate beyond the restrictive 3 to 3.5% range that it is currently targeting. Now, listeners might remember that Kulba has consistently forecast a US recession using sophisticated models that draw on both bond and equity market data. Our preferred bond market model was reporting the highest probabilities of a US recession since the early 1980s. In fact, when our chief macro strategist, Kieran Davies, ran this model all the way back to 1950, it had a perfect strike rate anticipating US recessions when the probabilities were as high as those we published in April this year. Yes, Chris. In fact, on Thursday last week, the US officially entered a technical recession after experiencing the second consecutive quarter of negative economic growth, which is the most commonly used definition. Our model pointed to a recession emerging in 2023, so this technical dip is earlier than expected. But there is doubtless much more demand destruction and economic adversity to come as the sharp increase in US interest rates crushes activity. This is why the bond market is signaling that the Fed will have to eventually cut rates. The current US 10-year government bond yield of around 2.65% is materially below the peak cash rate of 3.3% that the market believes the Fed will hit by the end of this year. Put another way, the yield curve is inverted. The zeitgeist is now changing for all asset classes. In late 2021, we were publicly very negative on everything, including fixed rate bonds, credit spreads, equities, property, and crypto. Our central case was that US equities would fall by more than 30% as the US 10-year government bond yield climbed from its 1% level at the time to north of 3.2%. Note that it eventually hit 3.46%. The trigger for these moves would be the need for the Fed to lift its cash rate to 25 to 3%, miles above the 1.3% market forecast at the time. This would smash fixed rate bonds and push global credit spreads 75 to 125 basis points wider. As it happened, fixed rate bonds reported record losses of 12 to 15%, while credit spreads leapt 100 to 150 basis points wider. One event that surprised us was the parallel explosion in 10-year Australian swap spreads, which moved much higher than comparable global swap spreads as a result of the unprecedented events surrounding the RBA dumping its 2024 yield curve target in October last year. Note that the RBA technically failed to defend the target and then dropped it at its November board meeting. This imposed massive losses on global investors that were long Aussie bonds on the basis they believed in the RBA's public commitment to keeping the yield on the 2024 Commonwealth government bond at 0.1%, i.e. a commitment to not increase the cash rate until 2024. The shock of the dramatic shift in policy and the subsequent vaporization of liquidity in the swaps market meant that it has taken some larger investors many months to exit their positions, which have only recently cleared. 
Higher swaps rates created a chain reaction across other markets as investors used swaps to manage their interest rate risk. As hedging costs jumped, the market demanded even larger yields from other ostensibly unrelated assets, such as state government bonds, as compensation. This was a key driver of the explosion in state government bond spreads to March 2020 levels. Yeah, that's right, Yingers. But the good news is in July, there was some modest relief with 10-year Aussie swap spreads compressing from an intra-month peak north of a record 52 basis points, which was a new high for the post-clearing period, to end the month around 41 basis points. This was foreshadowed by some pioneering quant research published by one of Coolvice portfolio managers, Matthew Johnson, which extended his novel fundamental model of Australian swap spreads to include globally co-integrated factors. And this paper is available on Livewire. I just want to quote from MJ's conclusion. And he says, we found that an omitted variable in our previous fundamental model of Aussie bond swap spreads was a global factor, which is a significant driver of swap spreads over time. Adding this global factor to our model improves explanatory power. However, it does not fully explain the recent rise in Aussie swap spreads. Even after accounting for the widening of global spreads, Aussie 10-year swap spreads are more than 20 basis points wide of where historical relationships suggest their value is right now. While spreads may vary from this model's projections for some time, we are confident in the long-term gravity that fair value exerts. Aussie Commonwealth bonds are rich relative to US cash. So investors should substitute to cheaper bonds and issuers should look to issue into Aussie dollars. This is a patient but very real force. And he concludes by saying, it is notable that the gap to fair value is at all-time wides on both short-term and long-term models. In terms of timing, we are encouraged by the recent tightening of euro swap spreads and the tightening of model fair value. This comports with our fundamental view of the outlook for global spreads and our views around the outlook for global and local government bond issuance. Now, Ying, as we haven't really talked much about this publicly, but since the second half of 2021, Coolabar has monetized around $8.2 billion of credit shorts to capitalize on our forecast for wider credit spreads, primarily focused on US and European credit as an expression of our negative outlook on credit markets in late 2021. In fact, in the last financial year, our credit shorts and credit hedges were our single best performing position. So since credit spreads have exploded 100 to 150 basis points, the assets we were selling or shorting in late 2020 and through the course of 2021, which looked heinously expensive, namely Bank Senior, Tier 2, and RMBS, some of these sectors are starting to look attractive again, as you've already noted, Yingers. And it's worthwhile diving into a few case studies. As one example, the major bank's five-year Tier 2 bonds paid a miserly 1.25% spread above the quarterly bank bill swap rate last year. And since BBSW was just 0.01%, or basically nothing, your total yield on five-year Tier 2 was only around one and a quarter percent. In comparison, last week, NAB issued a new five-year tier two bond that offered near record 2.8% spread or 280-bit spread above BBSW. At the same time, BBSW has surged from almost nothing last year to around 2.1 to 2.2%. So you're now getting total floating rate yield on triple B plus rated T2 of 5% compared to the 1.26% available last year. NAB offered a fixed rather than floating rate version of this bond that paid an even chunkier yield of 6.44% per annum. The fixed rate yields above the floating rate yield because the fixed rate bond embeds an expectation of where the RBA's cash rate will be over the next five years. Remarkably, that 6.44% yield on a NAB five-year bond is actually superior to 
the fully frank dividend yield you get on Aussie stocks. And we bid for $200 million. Yes, Chris. I think financial markets have shifted from focusing on pricing extreme interest rate hikes to now turning their minds to the rate cuts that may be required to support economies being slowly suffocated by tight monetary policy. Here in Australia, our 10-year government bond yield has fallen over 100 basis points from a peak of about 4.2% in mid-June to only around 3.1%. While media reporting of the Aussie inflation data last week concentrated on the enormous 6.1% headline result, bond markets actually rallied pricing in lower, not higher, interest rates because the data was not as bad as traders feared. In fact, the peak in the quarterly rate of inflation may have passed with the 1.8% outcome in the June quarter below the March quarter's 2.1% pace. Listening to Fed Chair Jay Powell speak following the Fed's decision to raise rates by another 75 basis points last week, one could detect a distinct shift. Powell said the Fed was now at its neutral 2.5% cash rate, and while there were more hikes to come, they would be more modest in size. Since the RBA is seemingly aping everything the Fed does, one might expect a similar change in tone, albeit with an inevitable delay given the RBA's rigid ways. There will likely be a string of data that emerges to support the idea that the RBA is hiking rates too aggressively and unnecessarily eviscerating activity in the name of responding to a nebulous inflation expectations threat. We saw signs of this in the retail spending data last week, which undershot forecasts. Since consumer confidence has crashed to GFC-like levels, spending will follow despite the claims that wages growth is strong and savings are high. Inflation-adjusted wages growth is actually negative and disposable household incomes are getting destroyed by the RBA's record interest rate increases. The RBA's own research shows that about 40% of all borrowers will suffer more than a 30 to 40% increase in their debt repayments as a share of their incomes if the RBA satisfies market expectations for future cash rate increases. Yeah, Yingers, and it's worthwhile clarifying that, you know, we run mostly floating rate portfolios. So we actually commercially benefit from RBA rate hikes through higher yields in our floating rate assets. And the other big tell in the real-time data vis-a-vis the impact of RBA policy on the economy is, of course, the housing market, which is something that we've been writing a lot about recently. In the month of July, Sydney home values plummeted more than 2.2%, and this was the single largest monthly loss in 40 years of data, according to CoreLogic. Sydney dwelling values have now declined by a significant 5.2% from their recent peak only months ago. In fact, since the RBA first raised rates on the 4th of May, home values in Sydney have been shrinking at an incredible 23% annualised rate. The story is similar in Melbourne, where dwelling values have declined by more than 1.3% in July and by over 3.2% from their recent peak. Since the first RBA rate hike in May, Melbourne house prices have been melting at a 16% annualised pace. Nationally, across the five biggest capital cities, they've been falling at about a 14% annualised rate. As we previously warned, Brisbane has well and truly joined the party, with prices in that city falling almost 1% in July. It appears that the only major capital city not currently suffering house price falls is Perth, although that market now looks to be also rolling over. Our position since October 2021 has been very explicitly laid out. We were the first analyst in the market to forecast a record 15 to 25% decline in national house prices after the first 
100 basis points of RBA rate increases. Now, we very clearly stated we expected more than 100 basis points of RBA rate increases, but the precise terminal cash rate is awfully difficult to predict, which is why our forecast spans a relatively wide 15 to 25% national drawdown interval, which in turn allows for a significant range of RBA terminal cash rates. Some like the uh, very funny economist Stephen Kukoulos like to claim that interest rate increases don't have much of an impact on house prices. Kukoulos argues that other demand and supply side variables such as population growth and new housing supply are much more important. You can listen to my very civil debate with Stephen, aka the Kook or Kooky, on the Fear and Greed podcast. In contrast to the opinions Kooky has expressed, the RBA's hard empirical research clearly shows that the most powerful determinant of house price movements since 2011 has been changes in mortgage rates or interest rates with comparatively little influence attributable to the variables that Kooky cites, namely population growth and building approvals. This makes a lot of intuitive sense. A one percentage point drop in your mortgage rate can improve your borrowing capacity by as much as 10 to 15 percentage points, which has a dramatic and immediate impact on your purchasing power. And of course, mortgage rates have moved sharply down and now up since 2011. Crucially, these big shifts in purchasing power instantly affect all buyers. By way of contrast, annual population growth of one to two percent relative to the 26 million people living in Australia and new building approvals of 1.5 percent of our 11 million property housing stock are not going to profoundly reshape the market's demand and supply-side dynamics over the next year. Aussie households are also becoming much, much more sensitive to changes in interest rates as household debt relative to disposable incomes has surged from 110% back in 2000 to 187% today. Our quant research finds that the huge increase in household debt means that an RBA cash rate of 3.5% today would be equivalent to a cash rate of around 7% in 2008 in terms of the share of income paid to service repayments of principal and interest on household debt. And Chris, one thing I think is important to remember is that the citywide results cover millions of homes. Individual suburbs will be recording much larger or smaller losses depending on their circumstances. This is why we often hear agents say, price falls are much larger in my postcodes. Property price movements in individual suburbs often vary markedly from the extremely well-diversified citywide index numbers, simply because of the idiosyncratic conditions that impact those localities. The two notable holdouts nationally are Adelaide and Perth, which managed to capture small capital gains of 0.4% and 0.2% in July, respectively. It's reasonable to assume that at some point these markets will give up the ghost or at the very least stop realising price appreciation. So that's all, folks. Thanks, Yingers, for rejoining the podcast. And we wish you the very best in your training and education of River as a prospective cooler by trader. As we noted at the top of the podcast, we're extremely excited about the investment opportunities on the long side now in some credit markets. We're still relatively dure about the underlying real economy outlook for the US. While the US economy recorded two quarters of negative GDP growth in the first half of 2022, we think the data will deteriorate markedly over the next 12 months. And it's more likely than not that the US economy experiences a real recession. We're probably most negative on the sub-investment grade or high-yield bond markets because we're forecasting the first genuine interest rate-led default cycle here in Australia since 1991 and arguably in the US since 2002. We really haven't experienced an inflation 
inflation triggered monetary policy tightening cycle for a very, very long time. And our concern is that many cuspy companies will go into default and that this hiking cycle could wipe out the hordes of zombie companies that have emerged since the GFC. You might recall we published research a long time ago showing that around 15% of all listed firms were zombies, namely companies that weren't even producing enough income or EBITDA to service the interest on their debts. If you want to closely follow our research, we're publishing every few days on Livewire. That's myself, Kieran Davies and Matt Johnson. And I obviously also write weekly in the AFR, which is published online on a Friday and in print in the weekend paper. Thanks a lot for listening. We appreciate your support. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.